Hey everyone, well like we said in the last episode, we have gone beyond just the podcast space and we have uh, video recorded our most recent episode and you can find that at our new YouTube channel at Ideology PC. Uh, so you can go to YouTube and type in at Ideology PC and find our channel there and see our most recently published episode. And we have also created an Instagram account to help keep you updated as to what's going on in the ideology space with this podcast. And that handle is also at Ideology PC. So I'd encourage you if you have benefited from this podcast to uh, follow those accounts. Uh, feel free to share those with friends and stay up to date with all the latest goings on with the Ideology Podcast. And without further ado, here's episode two of season four. Welcome to Ideology, McMurray here with Drew Stedman, and uh, we recorded an episode a couple weeks ago that I tried to enter as episode zero for season four, but uh, the software we use wouldn't let me, so this is officially uh, season four, episode two, but this is really kind of our first episode of season four, and uh, for you podcast listeners, you don't necessarily see this, of course, but we're actually doing video for the first time, and so... Uh, we will have uh, information for you in the future about how to access that, uh, unless I put it in the kind of a PSA at the beginning of this episode. We don't know at the time of this recording. So, uh, But Drew and I are here to unpack, uh, we teased this up last week, or last episode rather, uh, some of our original content as we've kind of been mulling over these ideas for the past several years, uh, not just in this context with the podcast, but uh, in discipleship and uh, practical pastoral ministry. And as we mentioned in the last episode, we just saw the need to kind of repackage this as it's clarified and some of these ideas have crystallized uh, in our minds, talking about um, the the waters that we're swimming in. If you go all the way back to our first episode, that's kind of been the theme of this podcast. What are the ideas that are shaping us, the, the dominant ideas in our culture? Uh, you know, probably the most prevalent theme that we've talked about is that we have historically been a Judeo-Christian uh, uh, culture, society, at least the underlying uh, beliefs about uh, reality and what it means to be human and so on, but that's been undergoing a shift, really, that began several hundred years ago in Western Europe, but has really permeated uh, the majority of, of popular culture now and, and is uh, having massive implications on our formation as believers having massive implications on the church and society at large. And so uh, today we're going to begin a more kind of systematic uh, look at uh, secularism as the new American religion. Drew, you'll explain what we mean by that here in just a moment. Um, you talked last week about how we use the phrase belief system and not just worldview, because this really does uh, operate at the level of even our subconscious. This forms kind of the operating system by which we make decisions and approach the world. I was actually just listening to a different podcast where uh, uh, Dr. Barna does uh, the uh, Barna research, and he was talking about how in his um, polling, the current estimation is that only 2% of millennials specifically uh, have a have a truly biblical worldview now or b biblical belief system. But the vast majority of millennials, and I would probably lump in most of Gen X and uh, Gen Z under them, uh, have more of a syncretistic belief system where 
um, there hasn't been as much thoughtfulness and the kind of the, that baseline of Judeo-Christianity has really been blended by multiple other uh, belief systems and this kind of secularism is this kind of catch-all term that we're using that uh, has become uh, enmeshed with some Judeo-Christian uh, beliefs that we have held for many centuries in this nation. And uh, again, that has massive implications. And so with that as a tee-up, Drew, why don't you uh, kick us off today talking about secularism as the new American religion? Yeah, that's a that's a good introduction, Mick. And that really is, if you wanted to say what's the thesis, is recognizing secularism to be, and I'm going to define a little bit what I mean by that word, but it is a pervasive and powerful modern religion, and I, I would argue it has become the default civil religion of American society. And um, right now, I, I want to well, – we'll get into this a bit more, but I want to say I, I'm not viewing – I'm not lamenting that per se. I don't think the previous uh, cultural Christian synthesis that dominated our society um, was necessarily a great thing for the kingdom of God or for a vibrant church. So it's this is not meant to be a reactionary, how do we go back in time to what it used to be? I, I don't – want that. I think there's positives of going back in time and negatives, um, just like there's positives of recent development and also negatives. But I, I do think it's important that we understand the time that we're in and then through that identify what does it mean as vibrant, hopefully vibrant disciples of Jesus to, to live as the church in this hour. Um, so I'm using this word religion very intentionally, and I'm doing it because it's a provocative word. And so you know, I, we could have a debate if you're a scholar of religion of what constitutes a religion. And, uh, you know, I, I have a lot of people that initially react when they hear that. They're like, it's not a religion. Um, you know, there, there's no belief in God. But um, Buddhism also doesn't believe in God and is qualified as a religion. So it's, you know, the contours of what defines a religion is uh, definitely disputed of what fits where. Um, if, if me using the term secularism as a modern religion throws you off, you can substitute the phrase you used earlier, Mick, belief system. And I would think that's pretty unproblematic, um, whether you are a Christian or a non-Christian, um, giving an assessment of this. I, I think that would absolutely apply. Um, but I'm going to still I'm going to still go for religion just to get our brains spinning, even if I can't fully defend it, um, because I think it's important to highlight that the formational effect of secularism. And really, the point's the same. Like you know, whatever term you use, the point's the same. And to me, the key ramification of this is that secularism is not neutral. And this is a tension, I feel, because I, I think a lot of people who, um, you know, you are a believer in secularism, um, I, I would find compared to maybe other religious traditions, they're not as self-aware that they operate within a religious tradition or a belief system. And, and I think secularism, um, part of its, its plan is to assert itself as a neutral belief system of universal thought, even though ironically, um, many of the leading scholars would say that's impossible. Um, but it's kind of this neutral system of universal ideas as opposed to religious belief that's based on some type of historic or uh, mythological, you know, material. And so it kind of sets itself up like this is kind of a scientific neutral and the other is this active faith and the two are, are opposed to each other. And really what I'm trying to say is I, I don't see those as inherently different. I think all of them represent ways of living and being in the world and, and represent, um, you know, you can, well, I'm going to highlight Charles Taylor in a minute. He calls it a social imaginary. I call it a belief system, but that's what these all are. Whether you're secular, Buddhist, Christian, you're living in something like that that's helping you to make sense of the world. And we've actually pointed out, I mean, you've pointed out several times that uh, not only is it not neutral, but there's even a, an expression of secularism in 
modern America that has become creedal. And you've seen that in yard signs and different yeah. uh, different social movements where there's almost a uh, kind of a profession of faith, if you will, that has been associated with different uh, expressions of secularism. Yeah, it's funny growing up and kind of like pseudo... Uh, you know, I didn't grow up in a, a Christian fundamentalist home, but you can get, you know, for those who are around in like 80s or early 90s, there was this borderline evangelical fundamentalist type movement um, that had influence. And, you know, there's people that are still today, you know, podcasts kind of pointing out problematic aspects of that, which I, I think there were many of those. Um, but what's ironic to me is I see a lot of those same tactics um, playing out for secular adherence <laughs> today. You know, they're using a lot of the same things of kind of this. Um, very um, almost judgmental morality. And, you know, it, it feels like that um, kind of the, the moral majority of the 1980s is being replayed just with a, a different belief system. But yeah, my my favorite is if you're in a um, typically a wealthy progressive neighborhood, which there's a whole host of ironic critique that we could throw in there. But you see these yard signs, they start off with we believe and it's like, you know, science is real and statements that on surface value are innocuous, but they're signaling something beyond that. Um, and rather than get into the content of what they're saying, I just, I found it really intriguing that it was framed creedally. It's, we believe, you know, it's not, we think, or, um, our best science has proven or whatever. It's, it's a belief, you know, it's an overt statement of creedal belief, um, that's being used as an underground or undergirding for, for something socially. Um, you know, so it's just, I, I think, um, it, it's not hard to see that, that kind of the belief component to this. Now I want to explore, I'm using the word secularism. I haven't defined it yet. So, um, that's probably the next logical step. And I want to look at Charles Taylor, who I've referenced. He has a you know nearly 900-page tome called A Secular Age and is often quoted. Um, there's others, um, Alistair McIntyre and you know many others who kind of chart the development of how do we go from a society that, um, at least in the West, was you know either Protestant or Catholic, but very overtly Christian as like a, a folk religion, you know, this idea of this is the religion that, that um, really gives shape to a whole society. How do we go from that within a couple hundred years, where as Taylor points out in his book, you go back, you know, five, 600 years ago, you couldn't find anyone who didn't believe in God. Like, you know, there's writers who would mention that, you know, maybe in a village, I heard there might be a person who's an atheist, you know, kind of thing. Like you, you didn't know anybody. It was so much a part of life and culture. And then there's this interim period around the United States formation, you know, where religion was very much, or Christian religion to specify in the public square, to where we are today, which um, is very different, you know, and there's a possibility of belief. Like I could be New Age, I could be Hindu, I could be Christian, I could be atheist, I could blend them all together, and that's entirely socially acceptable. And he's just looking at it really from the vantage point of a sociologist of how do you go from here to here? Like what what happened on a um, kind of belief system level that enabled those developments? And he defines, he, he looks at um, two common ideas for what secularism is. And then he adds his own third um, idea for what it might mean. Um, so the first, if we're, we're trying to understand secularism, um, according to Taylor, is describing a public square that has been emptied of God or any other reference to ultimate reality. And, and that's really the neutrality that I talked about at the beginning. You know, it's this, this understanding of we're just trying to create a space where every voice can be heard. Um, there's no values judgment in the public square. And so we all we all show up and... Um, come as equal participants. I think we could offer a pretty strong postmodern critique to that, that that's not realistic, and, and Taylor's certainly not advocating for it. But on a popular level, or maybe even its original terminology, that's what secularism would refer to. Um, but I would argue that in you know modern philosophy or sociology, that's that's not realistic, that that doesn't actually happen. It's impossible to have a public square devoid of belief system. 
And so there's something, it's, the question is whether we're aware of what the something is or not. Let me interrupt you there. And <clears throat> kind of on that point and going back to a previous point you made that secularism is not neutral, uh, you might tease that out a little later, but um, I, w that conjures up this image of kind of this insidious, almost uh, sentient, you know, uh, being that is kind of propagating this this belief system. Um, and what I think I heard you just say is the just the emptying of God or the removal of God from the public square creates this vacuum that by nature, we are believing creatures. And I just tease that out. What do you mean by secularism isn't neutral, that this is a farce if we just simply believe that we can empty the, the public square of, of religion? What is the kind of the propagating force behind that? Does that, make, does that question yeah. make sense? Yeah. Everyone, you know, all, all humans, at the end of the day, we, we base all of our knowledge and understanding of the world on something or some things. Like there's core assumptions that we accept a priori, like they, we just accept them and they then allow us to build um, the rest of our belief system. So it's like if you picture, no matter how large of a house you construct, it rests on a foundation and the foundation is ultimately going to come to some type of belief system or structure or assumptions we make about the world. And these are communal. They're, they're socially formed in us. They're not something, it's not like you make, went and rationally just decided, I'm going to build a new foundation. I mean, you, you speak within a language. Your language gives shape to that. You, you operate within some type of cultural history. Like all of these different things, the groups that you're in dialogue with, they allow you to have some type of foundational belief of what is possible in the world. And so you can't remove that. Like that has to be there. But what you can do is change that. And so the, the language I like to use at this point is conversion. So I don't think you go from being religious to, to not having beliefs anymore. I think you go from having beliefs and converting to a new set of beliefs. So you swap assumptions. And typically, and this would be central to my thought, typically, typically that's going to happen um, at a social level, not purely at an individual level. And I'm not minimizing the potential for individual conversion. But normally, um, if you can take a step back, what you see is there's a movement in society. So the more people around me who believe a different set of assumptions makes it viable for me to, to switch my set of assumptions to this new, this new belief system. Um, and that's then what I'd use to give framing to the world. And I, you know, I, I, I want to be clear. I don't view secularism as like my arch enemy. I, I'm not, um, I, really the goal of this podcast is, um, is not to go on the attack where we're just railing secularism. There's a lot of things I obviously sharply disagree with. Um, but if I could, you know, pinpoint any one thing, I just want us to be aware because I, I think what's challenging is if you don't see it for what it is, then it's really difficult to make sense of the world we're in right now. If you do see it for what it is, I think it helps equip the believer. Um, it helps us sharpen our own belief. It helps us to understand how to better relate. And the positive of secularism compared to maybe other religions or other belief systems is, you know, there's 70, 80 percent congruence with what I believe as a Christian. So there's a lot of opportunity for me to engage publicly with people, to have good dialogue with people. Uh, but if I'm not aware of the distinction, then it creates this tension. And you mentioned syncretism, to know where does Christianity be begin and secularism end. Mm -hmm. And that's that's tricky with the Christian faith because it always takes on a cultural flesh. And we can't remove – there's not a, a pure faith devoid of culture um, that is accessible to us this side of eternity. So, you know, it, it raises a lot of complicated questions.
Great. So I interrupted you because yeah. <laughs> the uh, the attempt to define secularism, I think, is really important at this stage. So you talked about the public square being emptied of God, but you mentioned a couple of ways that Charles Taylor talks about secularism. Yeah, second way of looking at it for him, and, and he's not really looking at it with the religious language that I am, though I think he gets there. Um, the second way of defining it is the falling off of religious belief and practice. So people just no longer believe in God or participate in church. So like when I read the Gallup surveys that talk about that, I don't read that as people are becoming less religious. I, be- I read that as people are, are converting to different sets of religious belief. Mm. And you know, again, it goes back to, I don't think it's possible to live without a belief system. And I think that's really easy to see in society once you start looking for it. And so what's happening, and this is where ultimately um, he's, he's, not, he's not satisfied with either of these first two answers either. Where he gets to in his third is that it defines a move in society where belief in God is unchallenged to one option among many. And that's really his definition of, of secularism. And his, his methodology is, no, is, is not noetic belief, meaning like he's not just looking at your stated things that you believe. He's actually looking at your experience. And, and so, you know, if I'm going to like pull this into my language, um, what, what he's looking at is what does it mean to live in this kind of secular belief system? And what it does is it means the range of what you think and interact with the world looks different than if you grew up. Um, in a more overtly um, Christian household, you know, where um, in that that way, you know, what God is is defined for you, but there may be other areas of life that um, aren't, you know, or whatever the case may be. In secularism, some of the key tenets that we can get into here in a little bit, um, what it allows you to do is make your own decisions about what God is or define your own ultimate reality. And this is where, hang with me because it's a bit complicated, but this is where I think we have to be really careful because that in and of itself is a statement about ultimate reality. And this is why I refer to secularism as a religion. So the thought that I, as a human being, can define the reality of the world around me and decide um, what God is or who God is and how I relate to God, I'm actually making a statement about the world with that. That is a metaphysical statement um, or really an ontological statement, actually, about what the world actually is. And in that, you know, it's saying that I, as a human being, have power to dictate those things. Um, and that's new. That's a novel statement. Uh, for you know, the Epicureans, you could look to that maybe, but historically, most people haven't believed that. They've believed there's some type of ultimate reality, and I have to accept that reality, but I, I don't get to define it in fullness. Um, so right now, I can just say that, and you know, we can talk, obviously, as a, a Christian. I, I'm not going to go with it, but um, I, can, I can make that statement as just more of like a factual, um, what, what's happening in secularism is that. Yeah, I just looked up the word secular for those who uh, like that surgical specificity, and uh, it comes from a Latin word, secularis. I'm, I'm not uh, an expert at Latin pronunciations, but uh, it just meant this present world. And so I, I, I think that um, the, the etymology of that wor- word being connected to kind of this materialistic worldview, again, materialism being the belief that the material world is all that there is, that it is devoid of the metaphysical. All we have is the physical. And so set over and over and against the biblical belief that uh, holds the two intention that we, of course, we live in and are deeply concerned about and committed to this present world and live in the material world. But we also believe in the immaterial. We believe in a, in a metaphysical dimension where God exists that is actually not just as real, but probably even more substantive and real than, than this world. And so that just to... Um, kind of ground that word in some historicity, uh, some historical um, uh, meaning behind the word secular, just so it's not 
this random word that's floating around in space that, again, like you said, we're not using it in the pejorative sense, uh, but just as a kind of a, 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 simpli- a simplistic way to capture the materialistic, naturalistic worldview. Yeah, and I, um, I, I will freely admit I am adding definition to secularism that um, you're not going to find online. So I'm describing it as a religion, which is um, beyond what, what you've said. If I had to um, add a few other words to it, um, I would put individualistic secularism is probably the, the next, or individualistic, naturalistic secularism. And here at the end of this episode, I'll, I'll take a stab at some of the core tenets of what this is. Um, I, I haven't found, uh, you know, I, I think it goes back to it's a religion that's not self-aware would be my critique. Um, and, and because of that, there's not, there's not necessarily a founder, there's not a name that I can freely um, throw on it. Um, what's interesting is a lot of other religions, that's how they develop too. You know, Christianity, um, that was not the language that Jesus used. It was actually opponents to Christianity branded it that way. And as a Christian, I'm like, great, I would love to be called a little Christ, you know, but that's um, it's probably a pejorative term. And so um, in the formation of religious belief, a lot of times it is hard to define at first or assign it to a name. So I'm, I'm suggesting the word secularism. If there's someone out there that has a better a better word for it, um, please send it to us, and, and I'm happy to, to consider that. So what I want to do, um, let, let me read this quote from Charles Taylor that I think this would be his summary of where we are now, and then I want to turn the corner and um, look at a little bit more of like what role does religion play in a society for why I'm, and just defend why I'm saying secularism is a religion, or at least how I see it functioning. Um, Taylor says, we are now living in a spiritual supernova a kind of galloping pluralism on the spiritual plane. And what he means by that is like this image of a supernova is important to him. And, and what he's describing is the options of belief. And it's this sense of like where your life used to be defined. Now it's this wide option of whatever you want to believe, whoever you want to be. What I'm going to argue is at the core of that is the primacy of the self or even the deification of the self. Like we have, we have exalted the self as a type of God um, but then within that, we are giving the self godlike powers to describe the universe and make sense of reality. Kind of like there's a shift from this objectivity that there's this this single unity outside of myself that defines the self, and that has exploded into this option, this uh, all these options for belief, where now it's a subjective. I am truth is is subject to my perception yeah. as opposed to objectively subscribing to something outside. Yeah, instead of God being up there and then God defines me and that's how I find my identity as self, um, I have have claimed godlike power and authority where now I get to define, even in some levels, over and against other other human persons um, and definitely in the spiritual realm, I, I actually am, am giving myself that kind of power um, and, and in my mind. And that's where I use the word deification. Like I am making myself into a type of God within this scenario. Um, and, you know, and I think that that's where Taylor doesn't fully use that language. So some of that's my interpretation or my development on his thought. So let me, let me take a moment and look at what is the role of religion or a belief system in a, in a society. So a few key people that I have leaned on. Um, I want to start with Peter Berger, who wrote the book. Um, I forget he had a co-author, but it was The Social Construction of Reality and um, this idea of social constructionism. And his, his point is that much of what we take of as the reality of the world is, the, is a social product. And so he uses this metaphor. So like, Mick, if you and I and our families were on an island, you know, and we had no means of communication, um, really all we have is we have these different objects and we have very basic biological needs, but that's all we have to go off of. But then in our act- interactions with each other, we might start developing a, a system of symbols 
we might start developing you know, some form of communication that allows us to interrelate. And there's probably things we would institute that early on would make a lot of sense. Like they, they, they came out of some type of need. But then what happens is they get passed down to successive generations who um, maybe it was perfectly, perfectly rational why we did it in the beginning. You know, you store the firewood here because of some reason, but over time that turns into some type of mythology or, you know, of, of why we put the fire or the, the wood over here, you know, whatever the case may be. And then, explaining natural phenomena. Yeah, yeah, we might explain that. And, and you know, it originally it came out of a very, like, real need in the moment where we're trying to cooperate. But what we end up doing, even inadvertently, is we end up creating a society. And, and I think his key point is that our future generations have no choice whether or not they live within that society. And I think it's fascinating. He, he describes... Um, a, a human infant as a as being born in the larva stage, <laughs> you know, which is a very not <laughs> nice way of saying it. But his point is like when a baby's born, it takes them, you know, six months to a year to really be able to fend for themselves. And if you look at, at other mammals, like their babies are born a little bit more, uh, you know, I don't know what the right word is, but they can like run around and pupa. Yeah, do cool stuff. What's after um, larva? Pupa, right? Uh, I don't is know. Is that like a toddler? Biologists um, need to weigh in. But um, what he's saying, though, and he, he's saying why is what's happening with infants is they're learning the social world, and so it's actually better for them to be out of the out of the womb because they're learning how human beings relate. Like we're so inherently social that the words we use, um, all of that, is we're helping them to, to to make sense of the world. And so for the rest of your life, you're actually not able to understand the world in and of itself. Like you don't ever see the world as it is; you see the world through the lens that's been socially constructed for you. And, you know, I think there's a, I, I have, I, I know there's some people maybe in our camp who, um, who uh, may, may, may find that challenging. I think it's actually fits perfectly. You know, I think it fits what I read in the Genesis account of, um, of human social life. And um, I think it definitely fits what I see in the biblical witness. Um, now, where I would be different than a postmodern is I do believe in absolute truth, but I don't believe in absolute truth that's accessible to pure reason. And that's really what this is critiquing. And, and a lot of, I, I think, you know, it, it's, you're probably would have a harder time finding, I, I'm sure they're there, but it would be a minority position where people who today would believe that we can have this neutral view from nowhere, where I can just analyze the world, I can see it in and of itself. Um, the majority opinion today would be, no, anything you analyze, you are wearing glasses, you're wearing a lens of what's been socially formed in you that is what is allowing you then to make sense of the world around you. And you really can't ever see outside of that lens. It's like a social epistemology almost that um, like empiricism would be, you know, probably the baseline epistemology today that ob through observation, through testing, I can come to know something or, you know, on the other end, as a Christian, revelation is another form of, of epistemology. But I almost hear you saying that <clears throat> pure, pure empiricism doesn't work outside of a, a social construct. Yeah. And we did an episode, I think it was last season, talking about, uh, essentially, we didn't use that terminology, but social empiricism or a social epistemology. And, uh, and, and uh, I know you're going to talk about uh, Wittgenstein and Polanyi uh, about um, the nature of language even, that uh, language doesn't exist outside of a social structure and language gives meaning and definition to the world. And you know, whether or not words have reference in the real world uh, has deep theological, um, that's a deep theological meditation, uh, even about the word become flesh, the nature of God yeah. as the word. But I, I think I'm jumping ahead in the notes here. No, and you got there. I mean, I think it, this goes all the way into our language. It's like, I, I think within a, a system of language and my uh, kind of like our imprint of 
the people who've gone before us culturally have handed down to us a language that then shapes the limit of our thought and the way that we relate to the real world to the point where it's a, it's a lively debate of um, you know what what actually exists beyond our our ability to put it into language and uh, you know I, I, not that many people are saying that we're a brain in the vat like we're not actually believing that we're just saying we can't know ultimately and so yeah, science is certainly reliable and makes sense of the world. It's not to undercut that. It's not to undercut other disciplines. It's just saying we can't know that they describe ultimate reality. We just know that they make good sense of the world. They're reliable. They're useful. Mm-hmm. So we can throw in some other words there, um, but they're not they're not means by which we access ultimate reality or reality in and of itself. And there's really no way to do so, um, at least from the vantage point of purely human reason. Now, where I would go with it is I would say that's where the power of God and revelation becomes so important because that's reality breaking into the world that then allows us to do it. But I wholeheartedly agree. Um, and I think it's, you know, I, I think there's this temptation sometimes with Christians where we want to defend modernity in a way, which is kind of weird to me. Um, I, I think I think where we are today is with a lot of this stuff is just recognizing that if you go way back into modernity, it was this this thought that we can know the world apart from God or any other form of religious or or, or mythical belief, we can just kind of know the world in and, in and of itself through observation, through, you know, typically either reason, which is logical thought inside of my head, or empiricism, which is um, observational or sensory perception in the real world. And between those two things, we can access ultimate reality. And I think what's happened in the last hundred years is, and there certainly have been dissenting voices, I mean, going all the way back to the beginning, but that's now widely accepted. Like you really can't access ultimate reality that way. Um, so then you either have to say there is no ultimate reality or there's God or something else that gives us that kind of access. So Wittgenstein and Polanyi debate, you know, about whether our words have reference in the real world. Um, but the the point, you know, for today's purposes, we don't need to go down that that bunny trail other than just to say that our reality is socially shaped. So then this other guy who actually is earlier, he predates Berger, but Emil Durkheim is a famous sociologist of religion. And his idea is, um, I, I can't remember, somebody, it, it wasn't actually him, it was one of his interpreters, um, summarized his thought, and I thought it did a good job with the statement that religion is the self-transcendence of a society. And so you kind of take what I said about Peter, Peter Berger, where then what happens over time is that society creates or, or even evolves a form of religious belief that is meant to re-enshrine the values of that society. And so what it's doing is it's adding all this thought to it um, to keep it going, you know, to keep the values of the society going. And so there's this kind of understanding that at the core, there was some, um, you know, logical reason for maybe why they did it. But now it's turned into a mythical quality. And um, this is what then becomes the glue of a society is this form of belief. And it's, it's a way for a society to almost reflect back upon itself. Um, and, you know, positively, I, I think he and others would say that this provides needed stability and a foundation upon which to construct a culture. So it goes, again, you know, if you and I are going to have a healthy relationship, if we can't agree on anything, if we can't understand each other, then that's not good. Like that's a recipe for all sorts of terrible things. But if, if there's some kind of symbolism that ties us together, we can relate to each other and we can pass on knowledge. Um, you know, there's some really fascinating theories about, you know, kind of what sets humans apart. And, and really it's our social ability to acquire knowledge. So if all I had was myself, my knowledge of the world would be very limited. Like I, you know, I would still be above the animals, but not that much. Um, much of what we have is we have this ability to internalize knowledge as humans and pass it down generationally and culturally, which then, you know, explodes the developmental potential, potential but it's social. And so, you know, positively, that's where this can, can happen. But negatively, 
this can can take a system that is oppressive in its nature and give it a type of religious quality to it that makes it very hard to overcome. Um, so I think as an example, a society that has a caste system, um, that's what this is, right? It's like this, this view of, uh, I'm most familiar with Hinduism, although I know there's other societies and you could even argue at times in the United States, we've had some, some form of this. But in Hinduism, um, you know, there's this belief of, there's all this stuff, you know, of reincarnation, the, the immortal, eternal soul, that gets passed down. And so central to this belief is that if you do your duty in this life, then you get reincarnated as something better in the next life. And that's just going to keep going. So if I, if I get handed, you know, if I'm a, the low end of the rung, I'm motivated to do my part well and not challenge the system because that gives me a leg up for a potential better reincarnation the next time. And if you're in power, it, it enshrines your power. It's a really great thing if you're in power. Um, because then all of a sudden now I'm, I'm actually not concerned about somebody lower than me. Um, I don't need to worry about them. And it's, it's my own merit. It's my own spiritual moral merit that gave me this. So it, it's not that I got lucky and got born into this family. It's that I actually did something good in the last life. The last life I might have been a lower caste or even a member of the animal kingdom, but I did my job well. I did my duty. So I've actually earned this. And now you get to earn it in this next life. So you can see it's like this. this has been baked into a religious system that then makes it very difficult for somebody um, to, to ever, um, you know, escape that because it, it's become religious. So there's positive and there's negative. Um, and, you know, I, I, you can see really quickly how people would use this to critique Christianity. And, um, and, you know, I think insofar as if the Christian faith, and this is why I'm not a huge fan of cultural Christianity, is because I think it can kind of become this Durkheimian religion, or, you know, I, I use the phrase civil religion, and that's um, I got this from Robert Bella, who was an American, um, I, I believe, sociologist, where he's looking at like whatever, you know, even if we have no creedal belief for the federal government, like we still have something like this, some form of belief that undergirds our society. So we swear on the Bible, we have a, a conception of right and wrong and what is moral and, you know, how the world works or whatever. And, you know, we largely understand each other within that, and that binds the society together as a whole. So it's not stated, but it's the civil religion in the background. Yeah, we talked about moral, moralistic therapeutic deism in the past that kind of encapsulates that notion, at least in the sense of like the syncretism of, of historic Orthodox Christianity and in that, that blending of a lot of those different belief systems. Yeah, and that could be um, – yeah, and go back. If that, that term's new to you, it's probably worth listening to. I don't know when we'll cover that again or if we will cover that um, as detailed. Uh, but yeah, that, that might even be taking kind of modern secularism and, and Christian symbolism and fusing them together. Um, but that's that can be what happens. And so, you know, then where that's negative, and, and you certainly see this in, in Christianity. You can look at um, aspects of medieval Europe or the United States, you know, especially when it comes to um, legacy of slavery or racism or things like that where... Um, if we're not careful, to me, it's a perversion of the gospel where it's being used um, it's being used outside its proper function. Now, the flip side, and this is where I'd push back on the critique, is the church at its most vibrant, including at its formation, was a minority persecuted sect. And for most of the church's history, has the, the vibrant wing of it has existed like that, and certainly around the world today. Um, I think of the church in China. I think of um, you know, that kind of the post-colonial churches in Africa and Latin America. I think of what's going on in India, Indonesia, the fast-growing churches in Iran, you know, all these different things. Um, it's not functioning like that. You know, it could, like, it, you know, and, and I think some of these countries, um, I'm thinking of particularly of a few places in Africa, it, it could go that way if we're not mm -hmm. careful. Um, but I, I think it's a hard argument to make that, you know, if the church is being persecuted by a powerful Roman empire for 300 years, that it's functioning in that way. It's clearly operating elsewhere. So, um, 
I, I don't think that, you know, that, that's a different episode um, than we want to get into today. However, here's what I want to do, and this is why I'm bringing it up, is my argument is that's what secularism today. I think it has become the civil religion of the United States. Uh, I think it has become the social imaginary of how we make sense of the world. I think it's become the self-transcendence of American society or Western society. It's like a lot of our cultural values are now getting turned into this quasi-religion <clears throat> that we then pass on to our children. We immortalize in film. We, we, we almost have, like you can almost go through it. It's almost like we have a list of saints. We have iconography. Wait, what's the word? Iconography. Iconography. There we yeah. go. Like we have all of that is like actually in our culture um, if we see it. And, and so it's not, um, you know, it's not, it's not that it's neutral values. Like we, we are reflecting upon our values um, in a at least quasi-religious way, if not overtly religious way. And it's meant to then bind society together. And so I, I think if I had to characterize the shift that many of us have felt the last decade or so, is the shift from a society that was largely cultural Christian to secular in the default civil religion. And, and so now that, that whole system that's the glue of our society that kind of binds us together. And when I run into you in the street and kind of our shared understanding is now largely based upon secularism. Um, the tension we experience is it's not total. So, you know, we live in Waco, Texas, which is, um, I, I think there's definitely parts that have rapidly secularized since I've been here, but there's still enough of that cultural Christian heritage and vibrant believers that it it's confused. Mm -hmm. um, when I was out in San Francisco last summer, secularism has won. Like it is dominant. If you're a Christian there, a vibrant Christian, you are clearly a minority. I would imagine a small town in Tennessee is still firmly culturally Christian. So it's it's in a transitional time, and I think that's a lot of the conflict. I think that's some of the generational conflict. Mm -hmm. So if you're older, your formative years of when you were being taught about the world were done in the context of cultural Christianity. And so even if you weren't a Christian, that's the irony of this. Those were still the terms in which you were taught to think. And so it doesn't even make sense to you. You're like, how can somebody even believe this? And if you're younger, that's actually flipped. Like your formative years were taught in the context of secularism. And like if you, you know, especially if you grew up in a non-believing house in California and went through a public school system, like it's it's very, almost in the same way that early Christians had to, um, you know, take somebody who was a Greek idol worshiper and catechize and walk them through this whole process just because you've been taught a very different way of living from your youth. And and that's hard to undo. Um I want to go back to something I said, though, on this is because I'm not trying to say, like, there is a danger. If you if you had the cultural Christian thing, you can actually be inoculated to the power of the gospel because it can become about Christianity as a civil religion that binds us together and not about the saving grace of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit who acts mm -hmm. in the world and calls the church into himself. And so that's the danger of cultural Christianity is I can use the language and even state the creeds, but entirely miss um, what's being said. And sometimes... You know, growing up in an unbelieving environment's better because it, you actually have to grapple with the, the true gospel and that reality of you're either all in or you're not. And I think that was the power of the early church is to believe came with a cost. So it's hard for me to, I, I don't know which one's better or not. That's why I, I I hear people talk sometimes and to me it feels mostly a lament like of what we're not. And I, I definitely am grieved by a lot of what I see in secularism. And I think um, you know, a society built on it. I, I think secularism is not a great religion. Um, that's that's the funny thing when you view it as a religion. You're like, man, this thing is like not that old. It, it's it's not very effective. Um, it's it's global track record's not very good. It's not leading people to happiness. It's not doing a very good job binding a society together. So viewed as a religion, it's not that great of one. Um, and that's the the sad thing to me is how many people are drawn to it. Mm -hmm. I'm like, 
It's kind of a dumpster fire. Yeah, but everybody's drawn to it because it places the self at the center. It's uh, uh, qualitatively, it is not proving out to be very effective, but it does. It's a shortcut to self-aggrandizement for sure. So let's um, let's wrap up with what are some tenets mm-hmm. of this new religion, and um, we're not going to go too in depth on this because we've um, we'll, we'll set this up for some future episodes of of, um, of viewing this um, kind of a back and forth and. What I want to try to do here is um, is not polemic, you know, um, but I do want to use this as a, as a guide. It, the more clearly I see what secularism is, we can we can evaluate our own beliefs, and um, I think we'll find some areas where like oh we're not far apart on that. There's some nuance, and there's others. So that's a pretty clear distinction between secular and Christian, and so that's personally helpful for me for even refining what I believe. Um, so, but let me give you a couple of them. So. Um, ontology is, is the big word of like, what is real? You know, um, h- how do we understand the world? And I, I would argue with secularism, a tenant, a key tenant is naturalism. And what that means is that the material world is all that there is. And what we can taste, touch, see, or measure in nature is ultimate reality. And there is nothing else. Um, Charles Taylor again says materialism describing that, like what I just said itself is an ontological thesis. And, and so in other words, um, it is an assumption, you know, there's no way to prove that the natural world is all that there is. And this is the great critique of naturalism is that it claims that the natural world is all that there is, but there's no way to validate that claim. So that is a faith claim about the world. It's not, there's, the, nobody has access to know if that's true or not, other than just making the claim. But that's what secularism does. It just accepts that. It's like, this is all that we can know. And it doesn't mean you can't have spiritual belief beyond it, but whatever belief you have that goes beyond what can be experienced, um, you know, empirically or through observation in the natural world is kind of in the realm of your opinion. It, it's not truth. It doesn't have truth value and is not binding. And, and so that's where, um, you know, kind of this, this idea of, um, I, w- I would say an overemphasis on science. Like I'm all for science. I think science is an, an effective way, but science is limited. It's, it's a discipline that if you can't repeatedly measure something and form hypotheses that you can test, like that's not science. And I think a lot of people are looking for something to validate truth. And so they, they actually turn science into a form of religion rather than keep science as an academic discipline. And so you, you would call that a category mistake. Like I'm asking it to do something it's actually not able to do. Second is in its theology, um, its belief about God. And that's, um, we've hit this already, is the deity of the autonomous self. And so that's at the core. I have reserved for myself a godlike power and ability to make sense of the world. And you actually don't have a right to infringe upon that. And I don't have the right to infringe upon that with you. And it's, I kind of live out of my own truth. I kind of follow it, my own moral system. And, you know, I could kind of keep, uh, keep going down that line. But as you pointed out in the past, when those two autonomous selves are in conflict, who arbitrates between them? And that's where the, the challenge comes. And so I would, I would say that there is a morality within secularism. And it's basically, um, you know, live true to yourself, live true to your own deification, but don't hurt somebody else or get in their way. So my moral system is then you as an autonomous self and this this individualistic, um, you know, atomized person over here, my job is to let you go do your thing as much as possible, not get in your way. And then where I've crossed the line, if I start to hinder you or hurt you, intentionally, not hurt you in the sense that I am not fulfilling my duties relationally, but hurt you in the sense I'm like literally hurting you. I'm I'm coming against you or robbing you of your own agency and your ability to live out your sense of of self. And and I think that's, to me, if I had to like pinpoint what's the center of the center in secularism, it's that. 
And, you know, I, to be fair, we can certainly see where other belief systems have oppressed people and robbed people uh, of any type of freedom. And so it's, it's not to say that the alternative is to lose that in its entirety. Um, but I, I think absent some kind of ultimate reality, the self is all we're left with. And in my mind, it's, it's theological, and then that, that brings in a moral system. Um, lastly, there's a teleology. And teleology is like, where, where is this ending up? What's the vision of the future? And I think the teleology is progress, and especially technical progress. And it's this thought, and this is where um, I, I would say secularism is a, an offshoot of Christianity. So it, it was developed out of Christianity, and you know Taylor and others and uh, McIntyre, they, they do a great job demonstrating that. It developed as an offshoot of Christianity, and it retained Christian eschatology, which is really interesting to me, mm-hmm. um, because there's no real reason to believe in progress. Like, if it, if we're in a natural world and we're all just doing our own thing, like, why should I believe the world will ever get better? Why should I believe that we're progressing towards anything? It doesn't even make sense. And how, who decides what progress is? Like, that's that's the irony of that word to me, is who are you to say that you even know what that is? Like, what privileged p- place do you have to mm-hmm. tell me what progress looks like? And how is whatever your answer might be not a cultural assumption based in your social location? Like, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to me. But it's still, it's in the system. And I think that's because as humans, we need some kind of belief in the future. And so that's what this has become, is it's not a belief of the, the coming kingdom of God, um, you know, and, and whether that's Christ coming with the clouds or whether that's a kingdom being established on this earth. It's not that but it's still this sense of progress. Like we're moving into something great where all of these autonomized selves get to pursue their own freedom and life and happiness. Technological power has given us the, you know, increased godlike ability to um, do what we want in the world. And, you know, that that's kind of the vision of the future. Yeah, I read an interesting book by a, a secular lady who grew up uh, in a Christian household, nominally Christian household, but she uh, talks about how um, technical kind of transhumanists have, have fully borrowed Christian eschatology with the Im- immortalization of the self, you know, through uh, melding mind and machine, through the through the pursuit of a utopian society that technology can create a utopian society, through the unification of mankind through technology. And uh, as a secular person, she kind of blows the whistle on herself and says, "We have to be honest that we actually borrowed this directly." I mean, this is Christian yeah. eschatology. Uh, almost verbatim. And and that's my, and, you know, I think as we wrap up this episode, like if you're trying to say um, what, you know, I know there's a lot of big words we throw out or concepts that depending on how much of this conversation you're a part of, uh, you may have to look some stuff up. But really what I'm trying to, to get across here is I'm advocating for secularism to become self-aware that it's a religion. I, I think that would help so much because right now my experience has been kind of in public dialogue, secularism tries to claim the high ground of neutrality and that makes it really difficult to have a conversation rather than, um, in my mind, it's better situated as interreligious dialogue, you know? So it's like in the same way, if I'm talking with a Muslim, we can, I've, I've had great friendships and dialogue with Muslims before because I actually understand the distinction between the two of us. And we can pinpoint, this is where we just see the world different. And I believe in the power of God to break through and bring truth and bring reality, but um, I, I, it's not fair for you to just make the claim that I have to see the world the way you do. And I'm not going to do the same thing. And I'll, I'll ask God to do that, but I'm not going to try to do that to you or force you to live in my way of thinking. Um, but I, th- I think that's what happens with secularism right now, is its lack of self-awareness has, um, has, has caused it to become, and I think it's, its role as a civil religion, where it almost feels like if you're not believing that, you know, you're a heretic. And, and I mean, really, that's what it feels like at times, at least in public dialogue. And so, um, you know, there's no way to control that, but I think as much as possible, even as a Christian, like forget on the secular side, if you are secular, I would challenge you 
look it up. Like do the do the research. Send in your thoughts. I mean, push back. Like let's let's have dialogue on this. Mm-hmm. Um, where does it fit? What is it? Is there a better word than religion? Do we call it a belief system or something else? Um, but but recognizing it's not neutral. It, it came from somewhere. It's an active belief system based on assumptions that was socially formed into you. And that self-awareness alone would be tremendous. And I think for Christians, our awareness of that's what this is helps us a ton make sense of what we are experiencing in the world. And that's why I found that personally so helpful. Because then when I see it that way, I'm like, okay, our society has undergone a conversion of sorts to secularism. This is now the civil religion. So then what are the ramifications for us? We have to be more clear on what we believe, not in an angry kind of way, but just clear. We're going to have to better disciple and catechize the next generation um, catechize, sorry, mispronounced that. Um, the next generation, we're going to have to, um, you know, learn learn how to identify our distinctions, um, why I believe different on certain things, and, and you know, I found that in some of the more kind of hot button issues of our day, sexuality or whatever, um, you know, what I what I have to trace it back to is where do, where's my starting point, and if I'm operating, if I'm engaging that conversation from a secular belief system, it's going to lead me to a very different place than if I'm engaging it from kind of um, an authentic um, Christian belief system. And and so just all of that self-awareness helps so much, and I actually think allows us to get along better. And so my goal, in a way, of pointing all this out, it, it really is not polemic. It's not, you know, how I'm bashing seculars. It's actually because I think the more honest we all are about this, it helps everybody to have better dialogue about what we believe and how we chart a way forward. So we'll let that be a wrap for today. Um, hope you guys find this content helpful, and and we'll pick back up with with some analysis on some of these points. Um, next episode. Yeah. And I would just add maybe in closing here, um, I so agree with you, Drew, that the, the finger starts by pointing inward. You, you talk about secularism being self-aware, but really it's us being yeah, self-aware that all of us are syncretistic at some level. Totally. All of us have a blended form of belief. You talk about ontology, that the secular beliefs, the material world is all that exists. I say that I believe in a metaphysical world, but how many days do I wake up expecting to interact meaningfully with that, you know, with that supernatural world? It's great. Like <laughs> Jesus and, thought, Nick. Like yeah, his G- Jesus and the, the disciples, that was just a, a, probably an expectation that disciples woke up with. And so I've been discipled far more by yeah. secularism than I would care to admit. And so, yeah, in the future, we'll, we'll kind of line out. You could almost put a T-chart up on all the major ologies, all the major philosophies, just kind of go down the line talking about origins and meaning and knowledge and reality and ethics and, you know, um, end times and, and so on and so forth. And I think that would be a really helpful meditation, a really helpful analysis on our own uh, spiritual formation to see where we've been co-opted or influenced by uh, anti-biblical or unbiblical ideas and thoughts. So thanks so much, Drew, for prepping the bulk of the content today. And thank you guys, as always, for listening in. Uh, as we said at the beginning of this episode, this is uh, just the beginning of uh, a dialogue that will hopefully be kind of a synthesis of all of our major themes over the past several years. So tune in next time uh, for more as we unpack these really important themes as a result uh, as it relates to our own spiritual formation and the health of the church in today's day and age. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we'll catch you next time on Ideology. Welcome to Ideology, everyone. McMurray here with Drew. Uh... <laughs> Not an auspicious start to our first video foray. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Better to do it on the front end because yeah, we can yeah, just yeah, cut yeah. it. Yeah. All right. Now we'll start. Okay.